my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The scientific laws, which are, they're not laws like thou shalt laws. They're laws that this is the way the world behaves. So you can make predictions. I think they give you wonderful guidance. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman. Welcome to this special episode of Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. In this episode, my teammate at iHeartMedia, a rather spectacular CMO and former guest on Math & Magic, Gail Troberman, is going to do a special marketers-focused interview with one of the world's great marketing thinkers and researchers, Byron Sharp. He's a genuine marketing guru, and he is the director of the Arenberg Bass Institute and a professor of marketing science at the University of South Australia. His approach is best captured by the view that to break through to the frontier of any field, first you have to navigate the fog of conventional wisdom, the established group think that says, these are the rules because this is the way it's always been done. Byron had the intuition to question accepted marketing wisdoms and chart a new path. Born and raised on a sheep farm outside of Auckland, New Zealand, Sharp harnessed the magic of serendipity early in his career. He was a marketing manager who, despite an early aversion to academia, 
ended up working for an academic institution, the University of Southern Australia. After determining that the business school there was underperforming due to a strategy error, Sharp trusted his gut, took a left turn, and here's where the math comes in. He decided to apply rigorous testing methods to study buyer behavior in a field he would help develop, the science of marketing. His discoveries led him to author a surprise bestseller, widely considered one of the most influential marketing books of the last 50 years, How Brands Grow. And it's built on his learnings as the head of the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, the world's largest center for research into marketing, at the same University of Southern Australia where he started as a marketing manager. Byron's research provides a wealth of insight on the range of industry topics, including one near and dear to me, best practices for CEOs around finding the right CMO. Byron says the best CMOs are the folks who are laser-focused on the business needs and the big goals. And in my experience, this advice is spot on. In fact, Gail has excelled in her role at iHeart because of her laser-focused, goal-oriented approach. So time for me to pass the mic over to Gail to lead this conversation with Byron on this evidence-based expertise on how brand growth actually works. Marketer to marketing guru. Here's Gail and Byron. Thank you, Bob. Byron, I'm excited to be here with you. Before we get into marketing, science, and growth, Bob always starts his interviews by giving listeners a picture of you in 60 seconds. Are you ready? I'm ready. Early riser or night owl? Early riser. Adelaide or Auckland? Adelaide. It's my chosen home. Coke or Pepsi? Oh, I live in a Coke country. <laughs> always have. <laughs> you know the stats. Mac or PC? Mac. Twitter or Instagram? Twitter. CEO or CMO? Well, I don't, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I'm a marketing person, but uh, I guess, well, near the best institute, I'm CEO, not CMO. Spring or fall? Spring, because summer's coming. <laughs> Call or text? Text. Uh, it's going to get a little bit harder, so the smartest person you know. The smartest person I think I ever knew would have to be Andrew Grunberg. Technology you can't live without. My Samsung uh, projector. Oh, first job. <laughs> My first job was actually at Rainbow Zen Adventure Park, roller coaster operator. Oh, wow. Secret talent? I'm not bad at dancing. What are you reading, watching, or listening to right now? I've just finished watching The Sandman on Netflix. Guilty pleasure. My wine cellar. Okay. From here, we're going to get into why we're here today. In your seminal book, How Brands Grow, which I think has just been the must-read Bible of marketing in so many ways, you know, I think the major laws of marketing that you've outlined in How Brands Grow, it's probably one of the most underrated or misunderstood marketing laws. What is it really that you think many marketers are just still getting wrong, even though you've given them this playbook? Uh, oh, uh, heaps. <laughs> no, I mean, marketers are terribly impressive. I think the profession is terribly impressive. But we are, in many ways, like so many other disciplines, I, I use the medical analogy in my book. Medicine used to be absolute rubbish. It used to actually shorten people's lives, in spite of the doctors being you know, well-educated and well-intentioned and believing that they were doing right. I used to say I started in PR. It's funny. I used to say all the time when people were, you know, in that exaggerated marketer fear moment, I was like, it's PR, not ER. It's okay. It's going to be okay. That is true. And, and particularly for people who are working for really big brands that have got established mental and physical availability, it means the marketers can't really do that much damage. 
But therein lies also the problem, and that they can be doing a lot of things that are wrong, but they don't realize they're wasting their time on trivial issues that really aren't going to build the value of the organization. Yeah. Before we go deeper, we usually dig a little bit into your early life, so we'll get a little more sense of who you are. If we travel back in time, I read that you grew up in a sheep farm outside Auckland. Yes. How about painting a quick picture of your childhood? Well, it was quite idyllic in the went to a great country school. My mom was a teacher for several of the years, and she was a very good teacher. I then went to a very large high school with, with no academic pretensions at all. It was quite good, though, because, you know, I, I studied a lot of humanities history. And I remember in art history, there were only two of us in the class until the other guy left in final year. So he had one-on-one teaching, which was pretty good. That's amazing. But I didn't want to be an academic. And if you're going to do history, you can end up being an academic or something. So I chose a business degree. I was pretty put off when I studied the management classes, which I thought they were terribly pseudo-academic. I loved the marketing classes because they talked about customers and the reason why firms existed, making products, working out what you would sell to them. You know, as an 18-year-old, I thought, this is business. This is what I wanted to learn. Mm -hmm. Uh, I knew accounting and things like that, but I wanted to learn how businesses work and the marketing classes seemed to do that. So that's the first sort of uh, serendipitous fall into marketing. And then the other one is, as Bob mentioned, I ended up being a marketing manager for the commercialization company of the university. And that was actually really very useful because you know, as a marketing person, first thing you do is you go through the books and see where the sales are coming from. And, you know, much to my surprise, the business school was rubbish. <laughs> and all the revenue was coming into, the, it was the chemical technology and pharmacists. And the business school was just selling, you know, short versions of its courses and things. The only future is if you make discoveries. The real world wants discoveries. And you've got to do that. You've got to do research. And so, well, you know, the rest is history. So how did the idea of an institute that focuses on research about marketing actually come about? Oh, well, that was easy. We were marketing people, so we were supposed to do research on that. But uh, the I think the odd thing was we had pretty low respect for particularly top American journals. <laughs> they seemed to be just uh, trivial questions, either showing off long words in the sort of humanities-oriented marketing ones, you know, the general consumer research and things, or showing off statistics and obscuring findings. So again, it's being inspired by those sort of Victorian scientists who actually got out and got their hands dirty, looked at the real world and collected real data and didn't try to obscure the data with ridiculously overfitted models and things. And so I started a journal which was about empirical generalizations, you know, doing replications and extensions to see does it hold in winter? Does it hold in summer? Does it hold in this country? Is it for fast-growing brands or slow-growing brands? You know, that sort of replication work, which is the major journals at the time just did not touch that. They were always, you have to have new. Everything has to be new. So the basic work of science wasn't being done. And someone suggested to me, you should ask Andrew Ehrenberg to be on the editorial board. And I sort of went, oh, is he still alive? I mean, oh, yes, well, well. All right, Andrew, and he wrote back immediately. Amazing. That's what created the Erebus Bass. We wanted want to not be parochial. We want to on both sides of the Atlantic. So Frank Bass also was a great proponent of, you know, he, he had the view that we can make the markings real world, science studies the real world. Uh, you, you should be able to find 
rule-like patterns just like everyone else has, and we have. One of my favorite things that you talk about is the importance of open-mindedness in marketing, right? This idea of science and letting the data lead you. Any marketing suppositions that you actually thought were right and then were proven untrue? It started dawning on me that the idea of reviewing differentiated will did not fit with some of the scientific laws like uh, like double jeopardy. I mean, that shouldn't happen. You should have, you know, two brands that are differentiated away from the others. So they're sharing more with each other, but way less with the others. So, yeah, we did some study. We compared patents and seeing duplication of purchase with uh, perceptual map data. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the perceptual map data, which you can predict, right? You know, the high premium brands clustered together and, and the others. Yeah. You know, this is for department stores. When you looked at the actual shopping data, the, the low price and the high price were sharing more than you'd expect. And then suddenly we got out an actual map, you know, a map map, you know, geographical map. And then, oh, it's obvious it's where the stores are. Yeah. And you realise that geography is a way bigger driver. If you're going to go buy a toaster or something, you can buy it at either one. And uh, mm-hmm. Young Rubicon had, um, was part of the Cantar thing, the two big equity study tracker things. And they kind of gave us their whole data. In it, they had a perceived differentiation measure, which had never been done in academia. Uh, Academics always inferred differentiation from perceptual maps or, you know, more complicated things. This actually just directly asked people in multiple ways, you know, questions like, if you could just tick or not, you know, is this brand different? Is it uh, unique? You know, and scores were really, really low, (laughs) really low. So even regular buyers of something like Two-thirds of Apple users wouldn't even tick any of those things. Wow. And uh, this is where the real world is mind-blowing, right? It, is, yeah. it just doesn't I know. work. That, that surprises <laughs> even me, and I was chief creative officer at Microsoft for a while. Yeah. So competing with well, Apple was the bane of my existence quite some time. Surely people know that, you know, the, the Macintosh is built on a Unix operating system. You know, PC is based <laughs> on a Windows operating system. And then I realized, I thought about my parents, and I thought, if I said that to them, they'd say, they'd say what's an operating system? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And they'd say, you know, we've got this Mac bar. You told us to buy this Mac bar. <laughs> we store our photos on it and we do email and we surf the web, you know, and, and is that different? <laughs> no, it's not different. All the computers do that, yes. Yes. And so yep. the real world, when you know, realised that, okay, the reason the scientific laws are like that is because consumers, they don't terribly see huge, they, you know, they do sometimes, they know a Ferrari is not a Toyota. Yeah. But apart from that, you don't need to torture data to know that. They see a lot of brands as interchangeable and they don't know much about the brands they're not buying. We're so enamored of our brands, right? We, we spend so much time in the data and thinking about all the nuances and we think that translates into the real world. People are just like, oh, what's on the shelf? How much is it? What's convenient? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we know about our competitors and things, but our, you know, if someone banks with, uh, you know, Wells Fargo and you ask them what's Bank of America like, they're, I don't know, I bank with Wells Fargo. Yeah, it's so true. And as marketers, right, I, I could tell you all the nuances of those brands. We see this huge differentiation and they go, they just see big banks. Yeah, exactly. Your book's been out for a dozen years, 13 years now. Um, what are you most proud of that you accomplished with how brands grow? 
I guess that so many people have bought it and read it. And I'm yeah, that's, a good, that's a good sign. <laughs> yes. I mean, some of the earliest findings of the, of the Institute and our advisory board members who are all you know, CMOs of uh, corporations told us to write it because they needed a book to explain to the CFO and the CEO what they were trying to achieve with marketing. So trying to move marketing to be evidence-based. And there was some, for the first time, some real evidence uh, behind it. So on that goal, I mean, I think it has been useful, but to transform a, a big corporation takes a lot of work. And it was oh, yeah. it's, yes. we talk about it as a journey. Uh, Bruce McColl, who uh, is probably one of the most famous in, in, in starting the, the journey at, at Mars, he still says, two steps forward, one step back, you know? Yeah. More on math and magic right after this quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. 
and then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. Let's hear more now from the conversation between Gail Troberman and Byron Sharp. Some of the criticism of your work was that it eliminates creativity or what we at Math & Magic call the magic of marketing. Why do you think people feel that way or why do you think that completely misses the point of the book? I use the example of the architecture of the book, that architects are wonderful creative people, but they still have to build buildings that they can hand over to an engineer and, and, and they go, well, this, you know, this means it the building is going to stay up, yes. And, and so the, the scientific laws, which are, they're not laws like thou shalt laws, they're laws that this is the way the world behaves, so you can make predictions. I think they give you wonderful guidance. I remember creative saying to me, a blank sheet of paper is a very scary thing. <laughs> so, so doing research, knowing what your distinctive assets are, and then saying, like, it's not optional. We used to, what we now call distinctive assets, used to be called creative devices, and they were sort of optional, you know? They're like, well, Mars stopped using for a whole decade, stopped using the M&M's characters because someone thought, oh, you know, what do these say about chocolate, you know? But then we say, no, we must use those. And I think to creatives, that's really useful. It's like, okay, right, so I'm doing an M&M's ad. It will feed the M&M's characters. Right. Marketers are so invested in their brands and all this detail and all the nuance and you know, personifying our brands that I think sometimes we get bored. You know, I've seen so many times where people, you know, new, new leadership, new management, new teams, new agencies, and people just want to do new things. It's human nature. They get bored with the same things. And, and it's not necessarily because they're not working. The, the duration of a campaign now, it's got to be so much shorter than the days of sort of iconic. I mean, which sort of goes to your whole point of mass marketing, right? You know, one of the things we talk a lot about at iHeart because we reach nine out of 10 U.S. consumers just on broadcast radio. And then we have our podcasting and our events businesses, which are also big. But one of the things that, you know, why we quote you so often and are huge believers is you dispelled that false assumption about mass marketing just not being competitive anymore in an era of targeting. Oh, Do you think yeah. mass marketing is still critical? Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, I remember a wit at Unilever once said, uh, you know, the great thing in the past was that uh, marketers came up with these targets that excluded most of their buyers, right? They basically <laughs> that they don't want to talk to most of their buyers. But fortunately, when they handed the money over to the media agency, that was impossible to deliver. So, <laughs> it's so, so luckily the brand, the brand was saved and, you know, we got to talk to everyone anyway. But, <laughs> but the great thing is that, you know, that we, we now have, the technology that that marketers could actually deliver on those highly restrictive targets. And that would be a fantastic way to drink brands. Tony, I do a podcast, uh, like a clubhouse to podcast conversation with marketers called Maybe You're Not the Target. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a human bias comes in 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 so many ways. We, We have so much data at our fingertips now as marketers versus probably when you wrote this book, it was much harder to get you know, research and data 
Uh, now we have so much data at our fingertips, and yet I think we're making less informed decisions very often. The simplest way I, I now explain it at conferences is I say, is anyone here work for big brands? <laughs> you know, you'll get people who go, yeah, of course I work for big brands. <laughs> All right, so uh, would you like some category growth? You know, like, of course we'd like category growth. You know, category yes, growth. Yes, <laughs> Okay, how do categories grow? I'll give you a clue. It's like brands, okay? People who are not buying the category start buying the category. Right. Would you like to talk to people who currently do not buy the category? Oh, yeah, I suppose we would. Right. So you not only have to reach all category buyers, including the lightest, you know, but you actually talk to people who are not in the category at the moment. That is how you will grow. Or you can chase ROI and shrink your brain. No, it's amazing. We see this all the time at iHeart. You know, Mark Pritchard at P&G was just a terrific example years back when P&G had sort of moved dramatically away from a lot of mass reach media. They moved almost entirely out of broadcast radio. They were making some decisions to cut budgets. So instead of just like a lot of marketers cut across the board, Mark started digging in and, you know, to that principle was like, we need growth. We need mass reach. Let's start trying some mass reach media again and affordable media because we're in a moment of making cuts. And he started reinvesting with a lot of their big mass reach brands you know, back into broadcast radio and into Adafone, both yep. of which they had, they had pulled way back from. And they saw this just amazing growth. The premise, again, if you're talking to nine out of 10 Americans about your laundry detergent, you're probably going to find some new consumers who pop into the store and buy it. Yeah, Mark sent me a complimentary email saying how it really turned their heads and, you know, put them back onto a growth path. Yeah, it's, it was a few years ago, and I think now they're in, like, the top probably four or five broadcast radio spenders all up, and they've had, you know, just a phenomenal track record of growth. You know, tons of their brands now are very loyal, very dependent on broadcast radio, which we love, obviously. They're great clients of ours. But you still have people going dark, right, doing burst of campaign and then going silent, you know, as if suddenly their consumers have stopped buying or something or they need a rest, right? You, yeah, you yeah, exactly. Or they'll just remember for these long periods of time. Yeah, I don't know if you have any data on this. I've seen some research about how long it takes when you go dark, how long it takes to kind of buy back that recall, you know, that mind share with consumers. It's, someone else has come in and taken. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem is you're reducing the efficiency of your spend by clustering, you know, you're basically clustering all your money into, say, one month and then nothing the next month. Uh, mm -hmm. I just spread it out over the two months. The golden rule with buying media, spread it out. Yeah, I think that's probably gotten a little better in the, you know, the digital era. There's a little, little more always on probably spending, but there's still this heavy reliance we see from so many customers. You talk about ROI not being the best driver or measure of growth. So many customers you see buying these very precious targets. I call it the gritty strivers, you know. And yes. so I'm going to pay a premium on a premium on a oh, premium man. to reach the this this epicenter of my target. And and I've added so much cost to my media because I'm targeting and targeting and targeting. And again, I've shrunk my pool of consumers dramatically by doing so. Why are you paying that huge premium? Well, because I don't want wastage. Right. Some of that wastage is your future customers. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Tell us a little bit about how you think about late buyers versus heavy buyers. After How Brands Grow, we did five-year analysis, five-year continuous panel analysis, and shows for a typical consumer good, about 80% of your buyers 
only buy you once a year or less often, like once every two years or three years or four years or five years. <laughs> and people go, okay, well, but then they can't make up much of my sales, right, because they're so light. You go, well, about 40%. So am I right? Your brand tracking only talks to people who have bought the category in the last two months? Hmm. <laughs> and you're actually buying these precise targets to only try to reach people. You really, you're just talking to your friends, basically. <laughs> yeah, it so feels like that sometimes. I read these briefs. In the States, there's a lot of media decision makers and people writing the briefs and making a lot of these decisions are very centralized in New York and Brooklyn increasingly. Bob always says, how many of you in this room own a Tesla? How many of you have been in a Tesla? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's less than 1% of cars on the road in America. So um, that's what we're always talking about at iHeart because we have this mass reach and much lower CPMs. So we've got two things going for radio there. What do you see as the challenges about mass reach? Well, fragmentation, obviously. But we've got cleverer people than we've got computers. And we do get that uh, reach. I mean, once upon a time, yes, it was terrible. I grew up in a country, and as I said, in New Zealand, well, first of all, we only had one TV station. So, yeah, you put an ad on, and you pretty much reach the country. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, some great brands were built doing that. And then, you know, later it got more complicated. And so I used to tell off, I think I told my shut up once, and say, you know, you guys used to say you knew, you know, oh, well, there's all this new media and it's difficult, we've got to learn about it, you know, whereas we knew TV. And I, really? You, knew, you didn't know TV? You didn't know it. It was just easy. It was just, there's three choices most of America's watching. So often people, you know, they'll hear the data, nine out of 10 Americans, lower costs. Like we have all these cases of other brands that have grown like PG by using mass media. And um, people will very, they'll be very skeptical, but they'll, they'll do a little test and then they'll just go, wow. <laughs> it's sort of like buying TV back in the, in the day in New Zealand. You know, you're just, you're reaching a lot more people. You're going to start seeing sales grow. But I would like to see marketers doing a lot more research and learning a lot more about things like radio, TV, outdoor. This idea of, oh, oh we, those are old, so we must know a lot. Really? What do you know about it? Yeah. You know, I, I love saying, so on a primetime TV show, of uh, how many people who watch this week will be back watching next week? Uh, people are, um, I don't know. I mean, like, we've known this for 50 years. We can predict this. But, uh, you know, I blame universities because most universities don't teach media at all. At all. Anything. At all. Yeah. It's so interesting because, yeah, on the media side, I think people get so caught up in the ROI metrics and these sort of momentary KPIs. You know, there's a lot of people touching a campaign, a lot of hands on keyboards going, I'm just going to drive that number or that number, or that number, and they're all in isolation of, they're not actually growth of sales. Yeah, they're not thinking about mental and physical availability. Those are the two big things. They underpin the value of your company. Yes, yes. Um, What about message? You you talk a lot about not getting too specific on who you're targeting, so you're going after the biggest pool of potential customers. But when it comes to messaging, you do believe in specific messaging. How do you advise people if you're talking to everyone? How do you find a message that works? Ah, well, that's why we have advertising agencies because if it was so, uh, you know, just, oh, that person's interested in cats, right? Well, we put a cat in it, that person's interested in dogs, we put a dog. If it was that easy, uh, we wouldn't need advertising agencies. No, we need Mm -hmm. advertising agencies because 
they go, okay, we well, need to communicate to millions of human beings, and they're all very different. Mm -hmm. They do have in common that they're human. Mm -hmm. You need to work with that, okay? We need a message that will resonate. Because uh, it's very hard to actually do personalization. Well, people don't realize that for all the research of the test, the academic test, we try personalization, the results are miserable. So it's much better to, to place your bet on great creativity that resonates with lots of people with a little bit of sophisticated mass marketing. I mean, obviously, if, if someone speaks Spanish rather than English, then you talk to them in Spanish. But what we want is we want mass we want scale with our creativity. Mm -hmm. uh, Richard actually did that. We, we, we fell into, what do you call it? The crap trap. The crap thought, trap, yes. I was there the, in that room for that AMA speech. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> We're wasting all our money creating all this different content. And so we had little money left over to actually buy media. Actually make sure anyone heard it or saw it. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, true. It's very true. What do you think about in this world where everyone's talking about privacy and you know, a world where we've become so dependent on targeting and now with the Cambridge Analytica and all of the maybe abuse of targeting that's happened, do you think people are going to be pivoting back to mass marketing? But also also because that targeting never worked. There's you know? <laughs> <laughs> that. We issued some reports. Nico Newman does very good work in this area, you know, spying on programmatic platforms and showing that, you know, you could do a target of, say, men and you reach men about half the time and half the time you reach women, you know, I mean, we absolutely thought we could do this, and, and we couldn't. But most of the time, we don't need the target. I mean, geographic, right? Geographic is hugely important because I do not have physical availability. It's very mm. patched. And so I would want to be able to buy media on a geographic basis. Yes, that's a really important targeting thing. Where people live really matters to their lives. Yeah. Uh, Duncan Watts' research shows that, you know, where people live affects what they do online. And then some categories have gender-based, you know, like I'm selling women's clothing, so I want to talk to women, or some have some age. But after that, it all gets quite trivial, really. We don't need anything much more than that. You think consumers are easier to sway than we think? We don't need to get 700 data points. I've seen literally target lists from, you know, digital campaigns where there's, you know, 50, 60 different criteria people are buying one impression of. That is a mistaken belief. It's an intuitive human belief that if we get more data, we're able to make better predictions. The forecasting scientists just shake their heads and go, no, you won't. No, you won't. I'm afraid simple models outperform those complex. Uh, no. How do you feel about loyalty programs? Same problem, talking to too few people too often? Yeah, it might be actually on loyalty programs. Yeah, we now know why they don't do a lot. You can detect the, the uplift in loyalty, but it's rather disappointing. And the reason it's disappointing is because why do you join that department's stores loyalty program? Because I shop there regularly. Uh, right. Okay. And if you don't shop there, you don't even hear about the loyalty programs. Very true. Then it's a fact that the recruits are heavy buyers. And then there's also the incentive effect. If, if you don't buy there a lot, then you go, I'm not going to get many points. So they're very expensive for low reach and they are what we call low quality media. It's like Facebook friends. You go, I'm going to build up a big, you know, thing of people who've liked me on Facebook. That is low quality media because you're just talking to the same people over and over. It's so funny. It's so true. I'm not a big loyalty club person, but uh, you know, I have a certain retail store I shop at all the time. And so I accrue points 
it's usually the first store I go to and I, I shop there quite often. And, and every time when they go, oh, you get $50 off this. And I'm like, amazing, but I was going to buy this anyway. <laughs> and, if, and if you think of a country like America, you've got a lot of people living in rural. So, you know, there was only one gas station I was going to buy from anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the one in town, that's so true. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting. We've been talking a lot lately about rural America and, you know, smaller towns where, you know, obviously because we have reached a nine out of 10 Americans, we, we're reaching rural, suburban, urban, all of the flavors of this nation. And I think so many marketers, you know, you see campaign after campaign after campaign. We want to buy the top 20 markets, top 20 markets. Again, most expensive, top 20 markets. You know, there's so many consumers out there who you've never exposed your message to if you just went a little bit broader. I've done some diagnostics on brands launches that have failed. One of the reasons is, you know, forty percent of the people in the country you, you never reached them. Never even got your message once. Yeah. Oh, wow. And yet usually it's the sales team has done a great job and you know they've got it into Walmart or something. It, it's there, it's ready to be bought. Yeah. But no one saw it on shelf because you only bought, yes, top twenty markets. Mm. Well, that's interesting. It's to memory structures that you talk a lot about. Can you explain your theory about memory structures? Consumers are, are fairly naturally loyal, right? They don't really care that much about brands. They keep going back to the same restaurants, the same stores, the same brands on shelf. And this is what is brand equity. You have mental and physical availability, but you, you need to have this to overlap and and you know, a lot of times it isn't overlapping and that a lot of people who are coming into the store just do not see you because there's tens of thousands of items in the store and they zoom in on the few that they know and then they get out of the store. You get a terrible return on the physical availability, whether that's on a website or in a physical store, you get a terrible return on it because you went in their heads. Likewise, there's no point being in people's heads. They don't know, where do I get this thing from? Uh, mm -hmm. So. My colleague, Vicky Romanek, has this great line, the world's biggest search engine is between people's ears. I spend so much time trying to figure out how to do audio creative well. And yeah. um, we always say that the uh, the world's best production machine is between your ears. So oh. if, I, you know, if I say Grand Canyon with Jello, yeah. you're picturing what color Jello? <laughs> it's amazing how we can fill in the pictures and be even, you know, targeted with audio creative, right? You know, I can say, yeah. did, did you have lunch today? Was it good? <laughs> Do you even remember it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And all of a sudden I have you thinking about your lunch. Whereas, you know, back like in Microsoft, I would have to make four spots for a year for Xbox for 31 countries. And that living room didn't look like anyone's living room because I was trying to mash up, you know, Southeast Asia and Europe <laughs> and no one had that living room. But if I said, picture yourself in your living room, I'm relevant right there with everyone. So it highlights the, the importance of having audio distinctive assets. Even if you are using video, the fact is you've got to expect fleeting exposures. People will not be paying attention to all that. And, and there's nothing you can do about that. And you shouldn't worry sure. about it. You should just be cognizant of it. So I need this TV ad to work in audio as well as, as in visual. Yeah, I know, particularly as people multitask too, I think a lot of brands have gotten more sophisticated in understanding how important audio is because it stays in your head. And then, like you said, there it is on the shelf. Oh, yeah. I don't even know why I'm picking that up, but it's in my head. I have to start paying more attention to jingles again. Yes. You know, we, yeah, we used to do some jingle hacks. We'd get musicians in with marketers and actually work on collaborating real time. And some amazing campaigns came out of that because 
a lot of household you know brands we know what they are we just need to remember to buy them remember they're available i cannot end a math and magic interview if i didn't ask you to shout out your favorite mathematician who's your favorite numbers person that would be gerald goodhart who works with us as a chair of our advisory board for ages, emeritus professor, honorary doctorate from the University of South Australia and, and colleague with Andrew Ehrenberg. And, and why do I say Gerald? Because Gerald described himself as a reformed statistician. And <laughs> he would always go, right, what's the simplest way of showing this? Very keen on what, where did the data come from? I really understand the data, first of all, before subjecting it to any sort of complex he can cut through the bullshit very well. There's a danger when people learn statistics like Gerald did, they just get enamored by their, it's like their machinery. And yeah, how to slice and dice it. And, and they just can totally lose picture of the real world. So Gerald was someone who learned statistics at Cambridge, but became a scientist mm. rather than someone who played being a statistician. That's what we need more of, definitely being uh, true to the science of marketing. How about the other side of the table? Who's your favorite creative? Who's your favorite magician on the other side of the math and magic coin? George Felix, who was at Procter & Gamble. He's responsible for the Old Spice revival. Oh, I, yeah. Fantastic magic and totally fitted in with, you know, the, the scientific laws. We know that was brilliant work. And, and did it when he went to Kentucky Fried Chicken. He was part of the team that finally, you know, brought back the kernel. Brought the kernel back? I think there was a time where, yeah, Kentucky Fried Chicken changed its name to KFC because, because the marketing department worried about that word fried. This is a classic example of marketing team just in their own little bubble, right? Rather than saying, okay, everyone knows it's fried. Everyone knows it's fried chicken. That's why they buy it. Yeah, it's it. not lost on you when you're wiping the grease off your hands. <laughs> That's why it's good. <laughs> yeah, and you might go, oh, you know, this old white guy from the South, that's not really so good. You go, well, don't think about that. It's a distinctive asset. It's branding. As I always point out, no one stops to think, why does the world's biggest burger chain have a Scottish name? No one ever does that. It's a brand. No one cares. <laughs> Bringing the king back, that was also genius. Yeah. yeah. That's totally in line with the science, and but it's wonderful creativity and bravery to do it. Right? So true. It's so true. Uh, we need more bravery. Uh, definitely the creative side of the equation. Well, this has been amazing. I think marketers out there are ready to learn a little math, a little magic. And your book, How Brands Grow, has just been really the Bible for so many marketers who are succeeding. And it's amazing the advice you have for marketers holds up so well, so, so well today. So, Thank you very much. Here are a few things I picked up from Gail's conversation with Byron. One, a data-driven approach can fuel creativity, not kill it. Byron uses the example of architectural design. Math and magic must come together to create buildings that are beautiful and structurally sound. Stay rooted in data and facts and your creative ideas can flourish. Two, in an era of targeted advertisements, mass marketing still works. While targeting can be a powerful tool, over-targeting can cause missed opportunities. Byron's research still finds that reaching more people brings in more customers. Three, numbers don't lie. As marketers, it can be tempting to create the campaigns we want to hear, but the data shows that our preferences might not reflect the mass audience. 
Byron reminds us that we need to cast aside our biases and stick to the messages that have proven success. Four, conventional wisdom often hides the truth. When we buy into groupthink without examining the proof, we often miss the right idea. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Susan Ward for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Marissa Brown for pulling research. Our editors, Derek Clements, Mary Dew, and Ryan Murdoch. Our producer, Morgan Lavoie. Our executive producer, Nikki Etor. And of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.